I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. And this week, we are joined by David Entroskis, uh, one of our favorite Jesuits on the internet, who you may have found already. If you haven't, uh, now's your chance. He's on Twitter at LibTheoJesuit, L-I-B-T-H-E-O, which stands for Liberation Theology. He just started a fantastic podcast called the Liberation Theology Podcast. You can find that probably everywhere you get your podcasts, but also online at LibTheoPodcast. And I encourage you to check that out for sure. He's also the author of a great book that we talk about later in the episode called La Fragua, El Teatro Jesuita de Centro America, which is about a, a really uh, fascinating Jesuit theater company um, in Honduras. So check that out. And let's see, what else to say? He's a prof at Xavier University in Cincinnati and just a, a really wonderful uh, voice to have in the Christian left conversation in the United States. Yeah, for sure. He's a, a great voice. Not only is he a smart, academic-y kind of person, he also has real experience <laughs> in Latin America and elsewhere that I think makes him a, a really helpful voice uh, in the situation. Um, before we move on to the interview, though, let me tell you a little bit about our Patreon, in case you were wondering, as one does often. <laughs> uh, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast, and you can give us financial support there. We would really appreciate that if you did it. Um, if you can't, that's totally fine. Give us an iTunes review, and that's good enough, really. But uh, if you do support us on Patreon, um, you can get such things like an invite to the Patreon-only Discord server. You can listen to episodes of our behind-the-paywall Patreon-exclusive podcast, The Lock-In. Uh, where we make lots of dumb jokes and also talk about uh, current events and sometimes just TV shows. It's great content. You can help support us, uh, your favorite Magnificast podcasters. We're the only two, so um, I guess we're <laughs> your favorite. Anyways, yeah, we really appreciate any support that you might give us. Um, but for now, let's go to the interview with David. Today on the show, we have a special guest, David Inchoskis, uh, SJ, another Jesuit on the show. Uh, he just started a, a great new podcast called the Liberation Theology Podcast. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to check it out. And we're not just saying that because I was recently on an episode of it. It's a, it's a really fantastic project, and I think listeners of our show will really appreciate what's going on over there. 
David, you're the second Jesuit that we've had on the Magnificast, following one of our other favorite Twitter Jesuits, Ken Homan, who talked to us about labor issues a little while back. So the Society of Jesus is holding on to its record as the religious order that's been most represented on the show so far. So congrats for that. Uh, for folks who don't know you, can you give us a little introduction? Who are you and what is this new podcast of yours about? Absolutely. Well, it's such a delight to be with y'all. And thank you for the invitation to join the show today. And thinking of Ken Homan, what a man <laughs> in so many ways, a role model for me. So I was very happy to hear about that connection. But I'm, I am a Jesuit in my seventh year of an 11-year uh, process of formation for the Jesuit priesthood. And I grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago and did my undergraduate studies at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And right after that, that's when I entered the Jesuits. That was in 2014. And uh, now for uh, this part of formation, we work full time for three years at some ministry. And so I am serving at Xavier University teaching Spanish and philosophy. That's in uh, Cincinnati in Ohio. Uh, because just previously I had finished graduate studies at Loyola Chicago in Spanish and in social philosophy. And so now basically my life is uh, teaching, researching, writing, and I serve in pastoral ministry to the Latin American community in Cincinnati on the weekends. That's great. Man, what a cool background. Well, um, we've been really encouraged by your presence on Twitter as a Jesuit talking about things like socialism, liberation, theology, and you had a really cool thing about Lenin a few days ago. That was fun. So uh, how did you get involved in all of this? Uh, what's the what's the origin story? Yeah, so for the Liberation Theology podcast, I would say that there's two ways that I got into it. One is more serious and the other one is more capricious. Uh, the serious one is that I, I really have had some powerful experiences in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that are related to liberation theology. And then alongside to that, I've kind of had a, an academic interest in liberation theology. And then I've, I've been thinking to myself about how in many ways, and myself included uh, in kind of earlier stages of my own dialogue with liberation theology, I feel like uh, sometimes there is an inaccessibility of texts on liberation theology. And so I think from those experiences and from that maybe need that I've discerned, that's how the podcast was born, maybe from a serious uh, considered point of view. The other reality is, is maybe the moment, which is that I just finished a book on Honduran cinematography. And I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I just am done writing. I think to myself, I have just written all day. I'm locked up uh, in my, I want to have some kind of social interaction. I still want to be an academic, but I really do believe like Ignacio Eacaria did that um, there's the serious aspect of being a scholar and, and there's the rigorous component of that, but there's also the social projection of the university. And what is a university if it's uh, just, uh, in on itself and not having any sort of popular impact on society. And so I think this is maybe a way of my doing that. But regarding like socialism, liberation, theology, and justice, I would say with socialism, and I studied abroad in Spain and did research in Guatemala in 2011. And I think there I met real live socialists for the first time. I mean, in my context in Chicago, I, I just don't think that that I really knew anyone. And these people in Spain and in Guatemala were doing amazing work. And I came to believe what they believed and wanted to live as they lived. Um, and 
kind of following from that, that same year when I was in Guatemala, I discovered that many of these socialists were also Catholic, and so was I. And they introduced me to liberation theology, and I would say that the rest of my time at Wake Forest was a personal and academic pursuit to learn as much as I could about it. And then, like justice in general, I would say, uh, as a someone who's white, male, somewhat rich from the suburbs of Chicago, um, and just my own personal situation, I definitely, as sure as hell, did not learn about justice and injustice, I think, through personal experience growing up. Um, it was kind of alienated or invisible to me in some ways. Uh, so I think it really took instances of solidarity with people who were suffering injustice for me to have a jolt out of my white suburban mentality that personal success was the end all. So yeah, I think that's that's a little bit of my entree into these topics. That's great. It helps us uh, understand too. I think especially that biographical piece that makes your podcast really compelling as well. Like uh, it's not just listening to someone talk about texts, but drawing from from real life and uh, thinking about how that engages the text. Um, I want to get to a, a question about the Jesuits and socialism in a moment. But before I do, you mentioned uh, Ignacio Ecaria, who has been prominent in your show and also in your presence online. Maybe you could introduce him a little bit for us as well and just kind of draw us a little bit further into the, the project of your podcast um, as that maybe in that spirit of Ecaria. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Korea is someone who is is very personal to me. Um, I never, you know, met him and uh, or anything like that. And I was born even after he died. But I feel a certain closeness with Korea and Korea, a Spanish Jesuit who went to El Salvador, ended up uh, becoming the rector of the newly founded Central American University in San Salvador, and really uh, dedicated his life to liberation theology and liberation philosophy. Someone also who kind of like myself, um, and this definitely comes inspired by Ignacio Eacaria. I was I was speaking about how on the weekends I I do uh, ministry with the Hispanic community in Cincinnati, and same thing with with Eacaria. He would spend the the week uh, the weekdays at the university and the weekends and sometimes the evenings just in solidarity with the local community and with their struggles and uh, and so. But Eacaria uh, during the armed conflict in El Salvador really did become a voice of, of the poor and the oppressed alongside um, many of his Jesuit companions and certainly inspired by the, the wonderful work and witness of Oscar Romero, uh, now Saint Oscar Romero. And for that solidarity, he, he paid the price of his, his life. And, um, and in 1989, he was killed uh, alongside a few uh, Jesuit companions and uh, two laywomen companions. Uh, just basically a, a military battalion came into the Jesuit residence and, uh, and slaughtered these folks and laid their bodies out on the lawn of the garden. And kind of my connection with that, which relates to the Liberation Theology podcast, is that I uh, in a recent trip to El Salvador, I stayed in the room of one of the Jesuits who was killed and, uh, and you know, from which he was drug out of his room. And, and the window of that room faces the garden where the Jesuit bodies were displayed. 
And staying in that room was so many feelings, you know, a, a haunting feeling. But I think what I take away from that experience was one, a, a, gra a deep gratitude in a way for the lives of these men and for my own call to be one of them as a Jesuit. And then from that, a sense that there is no way that I can be a Christian without being in solidarity with the struggle of the oppressed. And I think from that moment forward, you know, and I've been associated with liberation theology personally and in my academic writing before that time. But I think from that time onwards, I just realized this is an essential part of who I am and there's just no changing it. That's really moving uh, as an anecdote. I can't imagine what it must have been like both to be in that room, but also to be in that room as a Jesuit in formation. I mean, it's a it must have been a profound feeling to be part of that atmosphere. No doubt. Yeah. Well, the uh, the Jesuits have a, a really interesting and complicated history with socialism, to say the least. Uh, Ea Curia and the others in um, El Salvador are, are one example of having that complicated history, but lots more. On the show, we've talked about people like Juan Segundo and Fernando Cardinal and, and other folks. Uh, as a Jesuit yourself, who has learned, as you were saying, from all these other socialists that you've come in contact with, who are some socialist Jesuits that you feel you resonate with? What is it about the Jesuits that puts some people on the path toward a socialist politics? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to kind of draw our attention to maybe a lesser known figure in some ways who has had a huge impact on me, who's... Uh, uh, Father Guadalupe Carney. Uh, and Guadalupe Carney, he has a book, To Be a Revolutionary, that I would say of, of all the books that I've read, it's the book that's kind of most influenced me in my thought and in the way that I live. And he describes in that book his progressive shift, or originally he wanted the title of the book to be um, The Metamorphosis of a Revolutionary. So it really is his journey from a white suburban Catholic school kid to labor organizing in Detroit, to labor organizing in Honduras, and eventually to casting his lot with the Revolutionary Party of Central American Workers, Honduras, uh, PRDCH, and joining up with a group of, of guerrillas on the Nicaraguan-Honduran border. And I want to mention him not because I resonate with him in terms of the call to become a guerrilla or a chaplain of guerrillas, but because much of the book in a like, less intense way, I think captures my own shift in thought from liberaliz liberalism to socialism. And so highly recommend that book. It is like one of my prized possessions and I, I keep it on, on my, my shelf and it's you know, behind me when I record videos sometimes because I just really resonate with his, his process there. And his process is born out of a real encounter with Honduran campesinos and labor organizing and agrarian reform. And that is, is so much of my own experience as well, um, though in a less uh, consistent way, because I do go to Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador anytime I can get out of the United States, um, but you know, not as much. And, and of course, uh, I'm early on in formation. So now, regarding the Jesuits and socialism in, in general, I would say there is a saying we have in the Jesuits, and I know uh, James Martin loves to use this, and I found it in his books, 
And it's, if you've met one Jesuit, then you've met one Jesuit. <laughs> and so there are Jesuits of all political postures. And in fact, I think a lot of folks who have visited a Jesuit community or might have stayed over uh, for dinner one night or um, may be close to our life would understand that we do talk a lot about politics, but there is not necessarily a given as to what a, a particular Jesuit will be politically. So, but I do think there is kind of a connection, or at least there's a connection for some Jesuits, and I would speak of it in these terms. I think the mission of the Society of Jesus in the contemporary world defined by our documents is the service of faith and the promotion of justice. And for me, and for some Jesuits, the promotion of socialism is the promotion of justice. And now, uh, there's the caveats uh, there, uh, identified by the Nicaraguan bishops, another influential kind of text in my own journey, in their 1979 pastoral letter. Basically, what they say is, if socialism is rule by the majority of the people, and an overcoming of capitalist society and about equality and justice as it is, then there is no reason why someone cannot be a socialist and a Catholic. And I feel that personally, so I have no desire to defend, you know, Stalin or Mao or anything like that, but I do have a deep desire to move towards a post-capitalist society. And I think that that mission fits really well with the Jesuit vow of poverty and the Jesuit mission of promoting justice. I think it's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, I appreciate that that context that you've given. Um, also, just about the uh, the the varied politics of different Jesuits. Always a helpful note that <laughs> you can't just paint people with a very broad brush, I suppose. Um, but recently you were uh, tweeting on Twitter about teaching some text from Lenin in one of your classes. And I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, it is not every day that you read a Twitter thread from uh, a Jesuit about Lenin, but uh, it was a good day for me. <laughs> Anyways, um, how does that go over among students and your fellow Jesuits? Uh, what's the conversation around socialism like um, among Jesuits? Even like, I guess, how do they how do they receive uh, you and your particular politics and your interests in your community? Mm. Well, let me contextualize that a little bit. Uh, so, I do teach a class on social philosophy and film, and it's called Revolutionary Reels. I love the alliteration and pretty much everything I do, and so. <laughs> The first film we discuss on in that class is October by Eisenstein. And, and both of my theses at Loyola University Chicago in graduate school in both Spanish and social philosophy were on film. And so film is kind of my, my fun area of, of academia in a way, and very much so from the perspective of liberation theology and from the perspective of the left in many ways. But so the natural philosophical pairing for me with October is Lenin's April Theses and the military program of the proletarian revolution. And I think the broader question, why teach Lenin to undergraduate students? I think that my, my sense of it is one, well, it fit the movie. So there's that. <laughs> and, and the class covers one film from each continent. And I was really considering what film will we teach from Europe? And the first two that came to mind were Battleship or October. I got to teach one of those two. And I have a special love for Eisenstein's theory of montage and, and contrapuntal uh, editing. And so Lenin was, I think, a good choice because of his protagonism in the movie. And he raises a number of interesting philosophical issues in those texts. Uh, 
that I think are intriguing and very relevant to students, like um, in, in light of our current foreign policy situation, are the calls for the abolition of the police, um, immigration reform, all of these topics that are in the April theses and in the military program of the proletarian revolution, uh, dialogues about feminism and the left, all of these things are there and they're, they're so now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, I think if someone were to write these things today, we would have a very easy way in because of where we are currently in society. You know, some students are, uh, the students who signed up for this class are students who read the description, I think, <laughs> maybe in most cases, and knew that it was going to be a class from that perspective. And I speak about that in the summary of the class, and it's called Revolutionary Reels. And so we are taking on different revolutions all throughout the world and then uh, reading them in light of leftist political philosophy. So there's that. As far as um, kind of other Jesuits, to be honest, I, I don't think that any uh, Jesuits as of right now have have commented on it or really said anything about it. So I'm not sure what what other people might think about it. Um, but certainly I would like uh, y'all and everyone to know there's when I teach something, I feel like I look at it from the perspective of a philosopher and from the perspective of a critical lens. And so just as the liberation theologians would draw from elements of socialism, Marxism, uh, in creative ways and according to the signs of the times, I feel like I do the same thing. So in teaching the various philosophers that I teach in class, I tell my students, I'm going to teach from the perspective of that philosopher. And if you want to talk about it personally outside of class and office hours or after the semester's over, then we can get into it personally as well. Yeah, that's great. Good. Uh, pedagogy anyway, um, but especially, you know, a, as a tool for interrogating um, and thinking through Soviet film. I mean, how can you do that without understanding Lenin? So that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more, though, about how you navigate the the plurality of socialist context, um, which is something we also try to do on this show, um, perhaps with greater and lesser degrees of success. But, you know, more and more people are interested in socialism. It can be difficult, though, to get people to read much about the, the communist tradition or to have people seriously engage the work of someone like Lenin and um, treat him as a contemporary interlocutor with insights that perhaps we should still consider. Um, what made you want to explore these kinds of expressions of socialism and Marxism yourself? Is that maybe due to exposure to those kinds of things in a different context like Latin America or Spain? Is it something else? Uh, how did you uh, end up following these threads? Sure. You know, in a way, there's kind of a story here. And the story is my brother. And and my brother recently, uh, a few years ago, began to date a woman who identified herself as a Marxist-Leninist. And this, I think, kind of was a scary phenomenon for my parents. And my parents had discussions with my brother, you know, uh, because she was very into Venezuela and was advocating for Venezuela and basically lobbying on behalf of Venezuela. And a very interesting person as I read more about her and was in, in some ways delighted and intrigued by her presence in, in the family. And um, they lived down in New, New Orleans. So I, I only kind of really heard about their relationship uh, secondhand. 
But I think part of me was just like, okay, I, I've read some things by Marx and Lenin in the past, but as far as more recently, I think it just led me to say, okay, well, I'm very interested in Venezuela. In my Spanish classes, I teach a class that is uh, team taught by a professor from Venezuela, a professor from Ecuador, and myself. And so very much so uh, relations, international relations between Venezuela, Ecuador, and the United States are on my mind. And so I think that led me to say, okay, if I were to look at the U.S.-Venezuela situation from the perspective of Lenin, what would it be? And that has led my friends to just some illuminating, illuminating ideas. And I think of how very clearly, um, I think of, like I mentioned on my podcast a few days ago, a film like Burn, where you see Latin America passes through these three stages of history from the colonial period into the uh, neo-colonial period, and then uh, the current kind of phase that the liberation cite as one of liberation. And I think of how in, in some ways that is the case with Venezuela. And, and we can think of Venezuela also in terms of, um, Lenin makes it very clear, what happens is when one country becomes socialist, there's going to be a reaction against it. And that reaction in the United States has been in terms of a um, basically support for coups and for a program of economic sanctions that has been totally crippling on Venezuela. And so rereading Lenin in light of that, you see how smart he was <laughs> and how he was almost like a prophet. He could see many of the things that were to come in the uh, rest of the 20th century and uh, through to today. Yeah, it's true. Um... <laughs> I love the story about your brother's Marxist Lenin's girlfriend. That's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, the larger point I think is great. Um, Lenin's got a lot of good things to say uh, about uh, about the world that I think are still very useful. Um, well, uh, okay, we talked a little bit about communism. We talked a little bit about Leninism. Um, let's talk about maybe the the more the, the tougher aspects of liberation theology or, or the uh, the the friction between liberation theology and the Catholic Church because that is kind of a complicated thing. So we've talked a little bit on the show about how Pope Francis has rehabilitated several liberation theologians who were previously treated with suspicion or suspended from ministry altogether. So uh, I don't know. What do you think about that as a person who is, you know, actively a, a, a priest in the Catholic Church who's kind of in this uh, period of formation as a Jesuit? Um, what's what's changed in the Catholic Church around liberation theology? How is that that conversation treated now? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate, the thesis that I wrote about liberation theology was precisely on the matter of the dialogue between the liberation theologians and the Vatican. And I end with Pope Francis's uh, Evangelii Gaudium. And in many ways that what I wrote uh, several years ago, I no longer believe many of the things that's in there. And I'm very hesitant to share it with people. But for me, in my own journey, it was a very powerful time. But I think now I see the the documents of the 80s coming out of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, much as I discussed in the podcast the other day, in that I feel like it's a misreading or maybe a partial reading of the liberation theologians. So there's critiques of seeing Jesus as a political figure only, but many of the liberation theologians are very clear that this is not how they see it. They're just emphasizing this particular part of who Jesus is reading the signs of their times and their circumstance. It's not as if every circumstance in the Bible equally applies to every circumstance in the present. And so 
that's the beautiful thing about liberation theology is it proceeds from the present, from reality as it is experienced now, and then draws in creative ways under the influence of the Holy Spirit from those texts. And that's how, and I see that that's a healthy and holy and wonderful way of doing theology. So I think that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, as much as I, uh, as I love the Catholic Church and, of course, would um, accept any, any criticism, you know, from superiors and from in general, uh, I think that really in that particular case, they got it wrong. And so with, uh, with Pope Francis, I think we see in him a great spirit of dialogue. He speaks about a culture of encounter. I think of uh, um, an upcoming guest I'm going to have on Liberation Theology podcast, uh, Dr. Marcus Mesher from Xavier here, who speaks precisely, he just wrote a book about the culture of encounter. And I think that that's Francis's way of proceeding in that he uh, wants to dialogue with people as opposed to shutting people out or censoring people. And so we see, I think, a newfound openness and uh, renovation in a creative space. Uh, that call of Vatican II, I think, in Pope Francis is very much so alive. And it's refreshing, I think, to see that new openness and a new way of proceeding. And I think of uh, that term, way of proceeding, which is such a Jesuit term, and, and Pope Francis being a Jesuit, I think that he he is in that in that tradition. You know, I I think there's the part of him that is in discernment and sees discernment as a process and wants to look at reality and say, where is the spirit moving in this? And let's focus on that aspect of it. And so I think that Pope Francis uh, sees the good there. And I've been refreshed and I would say inspired by Pope Francis's Laudato Si and Fratelli Tutti. There's so many good things going on in there, especially in terms of a critique of capitalism and neoliberalism. So, amen. I'm, I'm so happy uh, with Pope Francis. And I would just say, like, let's keep keep it coming. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and I think you're right. That that culture of dialogue seems to be a uh, a real um, opening for continuing to have these conversations about liberation theology. Um, maybe I could get you to talk a little bit more about this too. You know, one question that sometimes Matt and I get when we talk with other people on the left, whether it's on podcasts or elsewhere, is questions about um, Pope Francis and liberation theology and the relationship between them. I think a lot of left-wing people are intrigued by Pope Francis and also you know, don't quite know what to make of him for a number of reasons, like like many of us, I guess, <laughs> sometimes don't quite know what to make of him, which I think is both a, a strength and weakness on the part of the Pope. Um, but in any case, uh, when it comes to liberation theology, one story that I sometimes hear from people on the left is, uh, you know, liberation theology was a big deal in the 70s and 80s, maybe into the 90s, and then it sort of passed away and now it's uh, now it's easy for the Vatican to um, embrace it because it's a shell of its former self or it's no longer as threatening. Uh, and I'm curious to hear what you make of that kind of impression about liberation theology that some people seem to have. Uh, does that seem true to you? Where is the the voice of liberation theology today? And, um, you know, how does that relate to the Vatican's new posture toward that movement? Sure. And I really want to highlight the fact of my own lived experience here in Central America and in Peru is that sometimes I'll have conversations with people within the Catholic Church and I'll speak about my own studies in liberation theology. And 
I want to acknowledge the fact that many times what people will say, there's kind of two responses. The first one is like, come to my ecclesial based community. And that to me is a very much so this is alive and very much so alive on the ground in the church in this renovation of the structures of the church when Puebla calls for a radical restructuring of church and society. I think we still see that in many places in Latin America. So in that way, there's not so much a death of liberation theology. And then there are so many professors I could name in Latin America and in the United States who are doing the work of liberation theology and teaching liberation theology. And so I want to acknowledge that. Now, the other response that people have is, well, it's so sad that people are no longer doing that as much. And so I think just as at Medellin, Medellin, the bishops recognize that the oppressed of Latin America are crying to their pastors for liberation. I think still, <laughs> not, still, the oppressed of Latin America are crying to their pastors for liberation. And so as long as that cry remains for liberation and for people to become agents of their own historical liberation, liberation theology will be able to draw from that experience because that's what liberation theology is. It's taking the experience of the people and reflecting on that experience. One makes a commitment to the process of liberation and then reflects on that process theologically. And so as long as people have a commitment to their to liberation, liberation theology will be done whether or not it's recognized. So I think that, yeah, that's how I would say. I think there's there's the grace of it and there's the challenge of it. And in some ways it's alive, in some way it's dead. But I think that my desire with the podcast was to launch it more into onto the radar of folks and uh, and engage in some discussions about it, because for me and for for the experience of the oppression, the oppressive oppression continues in so many ways. So we need to theologize uh, about it and see how it fits into God's plan for our liberation. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a great way of putting it, though, that, you know, liberation theology can't die <laughs> given the uh, the cry for liberation. I think that makes some sense. It's a it's a fascinating way to think through the uh, situation of liberation in the United States, even. Well, um, speaking of the United States, a lot of people in the U.S. have been talking about uh, the quote unquote Christian left and uh, especially with Joe Biden being elected the president. And um, there's a lot of complicated feelings and ideas around that, I think, between Dean and I. But uh, as a person influenced by liberation theology and your experience in Latin America, what do you what do you make of that discourse in the United States about the uh, the Christian left? What kind of things do you think that uh, Christians on the left should be thinking carefully about uh, in these these days of the ascendancy of Joe Biden? Yeah, uh, uh, Matt and Dean, let me be clear. I think people are still living with the trauma of Obama and Obama let me down and he let so many people around the world down as far as militarism, as far as I, I think of the horror of Honduras in 2009 in the coup and the response of the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton to that is so despicable and it gets me so upset. And then I think of Obama and his regime of sanctions on Venezuela and how Trump takes that and runs with it. 
a lot of the problems, uh, of course, have their roots deep back in history, but they were advanced by President Obama. And that is sad to me uh, as someone who, when I was in high school, campaigned for Obama uh, and had so much hope for Obama. And that was a, that's what it was about. It was about hope, right? And Obama talking about the Middle East and the peace process and a removal of troops. And I look at where we are now and it frustrates me. And how could I not look at Joe Biden and see him as removed from the Obama administration? It's impossible. And so I had come into the Biden administration with a great skepticism about, uh, about Biden. And, and so that is my first approach, okay? And, and then I think of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, very passionate here because it just really makes me upset. Um, it's welcome. That people, are, <laughs> people are, it seem to be acting in many ways as if Joe Biden is just like a return to normality. But if the return to normality is what we were experiencing under Obama, then there's a lot of that that I don't like and we don't want to be uh, engaging in here. I think of immigration and, and how Obama failed the country on immigration. And then uh, the transition to the Trump administration comes and people are very eager. You know, obviously, I'm a critic of Trump and I have I don't like Trump at all. I didn't vote for him. And uh, there's I don't want to associate my with myself with Trump in any way, really. But I would have to say that in some ways, uh, where was the criticism uh, when these things were in the works? in the Obama-Biden administration. So I, I'm sad. Now, on, on that note, though, and I think as y'all have said on your podcast on previous episodes, there are some good things. So I don't want to say that it's all bad because there are some good things. And, uh, and so I think we need to acknowledge that and work with that. For example, I think with, with Obama, um, a few months ago, I was I was uh, working with with someone on their dissertation on the Vatican as a mediator in international politics, and the role that the Vatican played with the Obama administration with respect to Cuba. And there are some things about that which are troubling, but in some ways, it's a step forward. And so I'm very happy about that. And I would like to see more of that and less of the Venezuela, Middle East, Honduras. Uh, so, yeah, there's the skepticism, and it's a deep skepticism, but I abide by the Jesuit and Pope Franciscan <laughs> policy of I do want to work with people where we can work with each other. And so can we, uh, on, <laughs> on, on the Christian left, but not in the same Christian left that other people are using Christian left, uh, push the Biden administration to do more of the good and less of the bad. And I think that's the role uh, for people. Yeah, I appreciate that, David. It's a good word. And uh, certainly you definitely do not have to apologize for being passionate about that. I mean, they are they're uh, 
you know, th- they should stir us up, I think, if we have a, a commitment to the oppressed, to, you know, the, the policies of, of Obama and Biden alike should should stir us uh, when they don't succeed in hearing that voice. Um, so it's good to, to keep that word present. Um, I'm curious to hear a bit more, too, as somebody who's been formed by this preferential option for the poor in liberation theology, by uh, seeing movements on the ground. I mean, you mentioned on your show in the first episode uh, being sort of uh, whisked away into the campaign for Rigoberto Menchu. Um, You know, as somebody who's been sort of uh, up close with certain popular movements where Christianity is uh, a kind of leaven in the dough there, um, do you have any sort of insights on what it would mean to be a a Christian uh, building those kinds of people's movements that would be capable of challenging a Biden administration or a future administration. Yes, I, I love. Again, I would just want to go back to the Nicaraguan uh, pastoral letter here for a second because I think it is a model, and the title of it is "Christian Commitment for a New Nicaragua." And part of me, a- after I finish with this editing of of the book, wants to write a Christian compromise or commitment, a compromiso. You know the whole Spanish situation. Uh, Christian commitment for a new United States, because so many we have to, we have to attack the problem of the United States from the root, because these things go back deep. If we think about the founding of the United States as a colonial power, we think about uh, slavery, we think about um, our own role in neoliberalism. All of this is tied up in history, and I think these are the things that are are need to be challenged. And what I would like to say about that, something I learned from Guatemala and in Honduras, the folks in Guatemala and in Honduras are generally speaking young. They have a population where the vast majority of people are either young adults, adolescents, or children, right? And there's a lot of hope there, but there's also a danger there. And the danger with that is that the historical memory is not as preserved. And that's what I've, I learned from my time in Guatemala and in Honduras, is part of what these movements are doing in Guatemala and in Honduras is to tell the story of the country. And there is so much power in telling the story of the country because uh, as Dean and I were talking about the other day, when you go through the school system, you're, some of it's not gonna be questioned. And, we are trained in the United States in an operative nationalism. And I think of the Super Bowl <laughs> that we just had the other day. And there is no uh, event, you know, that just combines all of the United States and the, maybe the horrors of the United States into one thing than the Super Bowl, which is, uh, and I mean, I watch it for the advertising, right? And that's sad that I watch it for the advertising because it's fun and creative or whatever. Um, there's that. There's the bread and circuses that that the the Super Bowl is. We we just had an attempted insurrection in the United States, and now you know we're gathering around. Uh, the flag for the Super Bowl and everything is kind of fine and dandy. And it seems that we have not really wrestled with this reality here. And I think of a movie that I'm analyzing in Honduras about the 2009 coup. And the director, Katia Lara, in Quien Dijo Miedo, Who Said Fear, 
she goes into, at the time of the coup, some people were more interested in Honduras's victory over Costa Rica in a soccer match than they were about what was happening in their own country and at the political level, right? So I think that that is the hard work and it comes from education. And so I think we need to uh, be fighting that fight of educating and telling the story of what is happening in the United States, what is our role on the world stage, and frankly, we, we, we need a total, total restructuring. So it's kind of intimidating <laughs> in a way uh, for us to approach these problems. But I think that in my own way, my way of approaching it is through an ecclesial-based community. Because on Sunday, uh, I meet with a group of adults from the Latin American community, and we go through the spiritual exercises. And the spiritual exercises that we speak about are the spiritual exercises of Juan Luis II and Guadalupe Carney, both Jesuits who rewrote the spiritual exercises in light of a communal experience. So the spiritual exercises right now is oftentimes a very individual experience. You go on an individually directed retreat. But can there be this process of moving from sin to salvation in the spiritual exercises, moving from oppression to liberation? but also through the spiritual exercises. And so for me, I think that is a way, uh, I, I think of something, something else is coming to mind that's related to that point that I really want to share. There are professors at Jesuit universities, myself included, who are wondering, all right, in academia today, part of academia is hostile to the faith. And let's be honest, Part of the faith is hostile to academia. And liberation theology bridges this gap because it is, it's academia, <laughs> it's faith, and it's justice together. And so I find a great potential there for there to be a United States version of liberation theology that is in, in the context of the world, uh, that is related to Ignatian spirituality. Ignatian spirituality has a great potential uh, for as an in route for people, as it was for me and in my own entrance into the Society of Jesus. So I think, is there a way that we can combine the struggle of the poor, liberation theology, and Ignatian spirituality into a renovation of our universities so that people are trained when they go through the universe? So many people go through our universities, the Jesuit universities in the United States. Is there a way to make it not only a personally transformative experience as we desire, but a communally uh, transformative experience. So I don't know. That's my first take on that. It's a good first take. I mean, I think that a lot of the, um, well, you know, that there's like a, there's a deep tradition of, of pedagogy within um, Ignatian spirituality as well within the Jesuit tradition. I think that makes a lot of sense that you'd locate that, uh, that space of training for people to be more critical of their uh, political situation to be done there. I think that makes some sense. Um, well, speaking of that, uh, that tradition, <laughs> that Ignatian tradition, um, you did write a really cool book that I haven't read, admittedly, so I'm really looking forward to hearing about, <laughs> about revolutionary Jesuit theater in Honduras. Um, man, it just strikes me. I think that we probably have a lot more common than mm. we thought. Um, my background is in media studies, so hearing you talk about film um, is really cool. 
And uh, yeah, actually really fascinated about um, Jesuit theater as well. I wrote something about it, what seems like a million years ago now. But um, yeah, I don't know. What's what's revolu- what's revolutionary Jesuit theater? Uh, what's your book about? What's uh, How's that factor into everything here? Yes. Well, I cannot pass up the story of how I got involved with the Jesuit theater in Honduras as an, an entree into that conversation. So a few years ago when I was in first studies at Loyola Chicago, I had a desire to, in the, in the Mexican province of the Society of Jesus, there is wonderful work uh, of agricultural organizing. And I wanted to be a part of that. And however, I was just recovering from a concussion. And this was a bad concussion. I was in Peru and I was playing soccer and I got a concussion. And then I went to the doctor there and they were like, oh yeah, David, you're fine. And so then a few days later, I went to the top of Machu Picchu. And you can guess that the concussion plus high altitude is not a very good recipe for success. And so I came back to the United States very sick and with a a deep concussion problem. So my superior was like, David, there is no way that you are going to be out in the field for 10 to 12 hours a day. You will die or, or faint or something bad will happen to you. So I think kind of, and this was a man, this is a Jesuit who has served in Peru during like in the most difficult context that you could possibly imagine. And so he would have loved for me to have gone to uh, uh, to the Mexican province uh, for a few months and to have this experience. But he was like, David, I think you need a, mm, I'm going to try to wor- use the word that he would have used, like a softer experience. <laughs> <laughs> and theater might be that. So, Okay. So I went to Honduras not knowing anything about Jesuit theater or really, you know, in some ways I was like an anti-theater kid. <laughs> so, but I am I'm very interested in art and in, uh, you know, I, I did Spanish uh, and any Spanish major is going to come out with the study of literature and film and all of that. And so I had a deep interest in learning more about it, but I fell in love with this theater. There's no other way to describe it. If tomorrow my superior were to say, David, we want you to go and work for the theater for a few, I would be like, and like, even, you know, your ordination would be delayed. Maybe you're, I would be like, yes, I am. I I want in on that because I so love the work that this theater does, but it is called uh, the theater, the, uh, the artistic wing of the liberation theology movement in Central America. And that's exactly what it is. For some context, in 1979, on the same day that the theater, uh, La Fragua, which means Forge, the Forge Theater, when it had its first show, was the very same day of the Sandinista triumph in Nicaragua. And the Jesuit founder of this theater was in the basement of his residence listening to uh, the Sandinista radio program speaking about this triumph of the Sandinistas in, in 1979. And then the theater lived the life of the Contra War because Honduras is used as a staging ground for uh, the Contra War against the Sandinista government. And so the theater lives that life. And what the theater does, essentially, the program that I'm most excited about in the theater is called El, Evan- El Evangelio en Vivo, or The Gospel Live. And what this program is, is just as a, a base community in the liberation theology tradition, takes the experiences of 
their lives, experience of oppression, seeking liberation, and then reads the Bible in light of those experiences, and then takes, in light of that, actions together as a community that are fruitful in that liberative process. So there's that. The theater just adds theater to this component, is that when they are, um, when, when folks are speaking about the reality of the present moment, what a better way to get in touch with that than to dramatize it. And so there's kind of a few steps. You can see people dramatizing the life of their community, dramatizing uh, the biblical passage, and then dramatizing each of these things in light of each other. And what this does, I think of Paulo Freire, I think of every liberation theologian I've ever read, speaks about the important transition that people, uh, that, that people should make from being spectators of history to actors in history. And that is what liberative theater does. It, makes, it, it turns folks from uh, spectators into actors. And one of the amazing things, I would just say as a cultural note, I don't want to generalize too much, but one of the experiences that I had in Guatemala and in Honduras as well, to a lesser degree, is that sometimes um, compared to like the life of a suburban person from the United States or like in Chicago and I don't know, at least the friends that I had, there's kind of a timidity. And that timidity in some ways comes from experiences of trauma and also in some ways comes from, I think, a cultural reality. And so I think part of what the mission of the theater was doing was to encourage people to become agents of, of their own change and using theater as a way of maybe enacting, we could say, uh, acting and then enacting the revolution. Uh, so I think that's kind of amazing. And then uh, apart from that, the theater just puts on plays that have a direct relationship with what's happening in the country at any given time. They just did Animal Farm. And uh, of course, we can think of Animal Farm and its uh, anti-communist component. But Father Jack at the theater basically rewrote Animal Farm in light of the 2009 coup in Honduras and in light of the dictatorship of Juan Orlando Hernandez in Honduras. And it is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was there a few summers ago for the opening of this show. And you see people connecting. They are right there, you know, when, when the, the actresses and actors are putting on, they're recognizing the struggle of their people and the struggle of this play. And it does two things. One, they, they laugh at it because I think maybe like uh, some other folks, I, I agree. And that I think that there has to be an opportunity for people to, to laugh and make fun of. I think the other day, uh, one of your guests mentioned that the insurrectionists were like clowns, right? And, and I think that, that is, there's that component. But then there also, it can't stop there with the criticism and with the making fun of, there has to be the active component. And so I think this is what revolutionary theater does, and uh, that's what this particular theater does. And so basically, after learning about it and finding out that um, actually the Jesuit founder of the theater just returned a few days ago, after 41 years of serving in, in Honduras, he returned to the United States to retire. And 
in light of that and knowing that that was on the horizon, part of me said, we have to tell the story of the theater before this man passes away. And so it was a communal process that consisted of interviews and, and, and studies and research and so many components. But over the course of about uh, three years, we, we put together the book and I, uh, oh, it, and it was published by the UCA, by the Central American University of the Society of Jesus. And, and uh, it just, yeah, could not have been a more invigorating process to learn about this community and the way that they live out the struggle in art. I think it's such a fascinating thing to hear you talk about because, I mean, okay, most of the things that I know about Jesuit theater come from sort of like the weird Renaissance era. And it was basically, I mean, this is a gloss on it for sure, but, you know, just a, a big way to teach people about, um, uh, you know, Ignatian spirituality, but also to scare them about hell. But to hear, but to hear from this angle too, it's it's so much more interesting, right? I mean, it kind of speaks to what you were saying a few minutes ago about the, uh, you know, the transformation of uh, Catholic education away from complacency or um, away from just the um, the the ways that um, U.S. Uh, nationalism kind of seeps into our education towards some kind of other revolutionary end. So it's such a cool thing to hear about um, in that it uh, it demonstrates that there's a other horizon possible. I think for um, religion in the U.S., but we have to follow the uh, follow the lead of folks uh, in Latin America. And Matt, I, I think you're so right about that because I think of uh, Guadalupe Carney's book, and he speaks about his experience with Jesuit education. And I do resonate with uh, with Father Carney in this regard. I think that sometimes Jesuit schools are what he called um, factories of capitalists, and so. Uh, they do cost a lot of money, and we give people amazing tools in their academic life to go on and, and be successful in university and beyond, but it's being successful as being successful means in the capitalist United States. So I think this is an educational process in the theater, and that's like Paulo Freire and, and his own pedagogy, I think that's maybe the indication of a movement, I think, of where Jesuit education may be able to go in the future in Latin America and uh, in the United States as well. And there's so much more that I want to ask you about, David, but we are reaching the end of the hour here, unfortunately, uh, which I suppose means that we'll have to have you back at some point to keep talking about this and keep the conversation going. Um, but I do want to ask you one final sort of stock question that we put to our guests. Uh, what's one thing that you wish that Christians knew about the left? And what's one thing that you wish the left might know about Christians or Christianity? Yes. And, oh, here is my answer. I'm just going to quote two sentences from Juan Luis Segundo here and then speak about them in light of that. And this is from his book, Our Idea of God, which is... I don't know if that Carney book is my number one, this one has to be number two, right? And he says, quote, in the domain of time, salvation is political maturity. It is the maturity of the political being that every human being is. And so what I would say to actually both, both Christians who um, want to know more about the left and left who wants to, to know more about Christians and how they might interact with each other, I would say there is a tendency that I see as negative in Christianity to not want to get involved in politics. And this to me is such 
I see that I see the the reason, all right, because many times religion is in fact a superstructure that is just uh reinforcing the current material conditions. And we want to avoid that. But in liberation theology, salvation, at least within the arena of time, is a historical project that in, unfolds as progress. And so what this means, the wonderful thing that this means, is that Christians and leftists, you know, whether they're both or whether they're separate, uh, can and should work together. And for the Christian, what it means to work with the left, the leftist on mutual liberation from oppression and the movement towards a socialist society, that is building the kingdom of God. And so when we, we can build the kingdom of God together. So maybe I would say from the Christian perspective, work with the, the leftist and build the kingdom of God together. Now, from the leftist point of view, that may have a skepticism towards religion, and rightfully so. And I think we only have to look to the capital insurrection to see the horrors of when religion is used as uh, basically a superstructure to preserve the capitalist order. I saw people marching into that capital with a sign that said, uh, the real coronavirus is communism or something like that, which is just so wrong in so many ways. But I would say, um, I would love to work with with you, uh, someone who who is who's an atheist or maybe uh, non-Christian on the left. And I would be like, we have so many of the same goals. And and so let us work together and collaborate together. And and you're going to purify me. And uh, and that's what Juan Luis Segundo said. The non-Christian, especially the atheist who is working with the Christian on the left is purifying the Christian of their idolatry. And I think that for me is what I see happen so many times when I've had dialogues with atheists. I think atheists have pushed me to be more committed to uh, revolutionary socialist politics. And I am so grateful from that. And they have cast down many golden calves that I have put up for myself along the way. And I am so grateful for that. So. I would just say, like, let's do it and let's do it together. That's a fantastic note to end on, I think, David. Uh, for people who want to hear more of what you're up to, I encourage them to check out the Liberation Theology podcast uh, and uh, continue that conversation there as well. Anything else that people should know about? How can they find you, uh, your work, David? Yeah, I think uh, Twitter, the Liberation Theology podcast, and then welcome to check out my book, uh, La Fragua, El Teatro Jesuita de Centro America at the UCA website. And then upcoming book here on Honduran cinematography will be published by the National Autonomous University of Honduras. And I'm hoping that there will be a digital copy of it so it'll be accessible. Fantastic. Uh, thanks so much. I'm sure we'll have you back again. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, again, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Also be sure to check out the Liberation Theology podcast. It's really great. I was just on it recently to talk about Enrique Dussel and Marxism and just a really fun conversation. And especially for folks interested in liberation theology, uh, David will do a better job at it than we ever could. So certainly check that podcast out. 
Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.